Proverbs close. We're going to be in Proverbs a lot. <clears throat> Kyle mentioned a couple weeks ago that we had a lot of scripture. I think we're going to top that tonight. So be ready to flip and flip fast. <clears throat> Name or says tonight as fools rush in. <clears throat> Will Rogers, the great American humorist, was called to the White House when Calvin Coolidge was the president. When he walked in the, in the presence of Mr. Coolidge, he said, Mr. President, would you like me to tell you all the latest political jokes? No, said Coolidge. He said, I've already hired them all. So Solomon, he had great insight on political jokes. He no doubt hired a few of them in his day. And he had actually played the fool himself on more than one occasion. And as you know, he's looking back over his life, and now he's in the book... <clears throat> which he has sort of journals his existence and he's evaluating his life under the sun, basically telling what life is when there's no God in the picture. And Solomon wants us to understand the difference in being wise and being foolish. And in fact, you can count the word folly or foolishness nine times just in the 10th chapter. And Solomon's going to tell us again that there are two ways to live life. And that's the way of wisdom, and then there's the way of the foolish. And as we look around us today, <clears throat> in the world in which we live, and, and how TV is beamed in our homes, we see evidence of these two different lifestyles. <clears throat> it's the wise way and the foolish way, and it seems we have far more illustrations of the foolish ways than we do of the wise in the way that we're living. And Solomon wants us to understand that, that we we got to make a choice. In Ecclesiastes 10, he, he, it's, it's like a slice out of the book of Proverbs. And Solomon wraps out one short proverb after another. And in this chapter, he's going to warn us against foolishness in four different areas of our lives. <clears throat> and he's going to talk to us about foolishness in little things, foolishness in leadership, foolishness in the labor pool, and foolishness in our language, or foolishness in our tongues. Um, if you would look at uh, Ecclesiastes 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Dead flies putrefy the <coughs> perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. Now, if you remember back in chapter 7, Solomon used this illustration of perfume. And if you remember, when, he, when we studied chapter 7, he says, a good name is actually better than precious ointment. And now he returns that picture again, and he's going to make a very important point for all of us to notice. And he says that if a dead fly gets in the perfume box, it can spoil the, the perfume and putrefy it. And, and that's a good illustration of what he says in the text. He said in the same way, a little bit of foolishness in somebody's life can destroy the perfume of their life. And it can destroy their dignity, it can destroy the reputation. And you've heard the expression, flying ointment. This is actually where this comes from. And Solomon wants us to understand that foolishness in our lives doesn't have to be some huge mistake. But, it, but it, we, can be just, we can be foolish in just little things. Little things can come along and ruin everything that a person has lived for. And you don't have to make, make a big mistake, just make a little one. And you don't have to do anything huge to mess up your life. Just do one little thing and see what can happen. And throughout the Bible, 
there are little tidbits of warning about taking care of the little things in your life that can ruin you. And for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 tells us, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It doesn't take very much yeast to make a big impact on the dough. Just a little bit, and it leavens the whole amount. And Song Solomon chapter 2, verse 15 says, Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. And this is actually comes from agriculture, but that says you don't have to have a huge fox or a lot of foxes. Just one little fox can ruin the vine. And James 3, 5 tells us that even so the tongue is a little member, it boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindleth. And what is he saying here? He's saying that one little spark out of control and you've got a mess. Acres of acres of property can be destroyed. And the spark of the tongue can be just as devastating. And Solomon's saying that you don't want to take the little things for granted. Don't, don't assume that one little thing is not going to make a big difference. And sometimes little things can reap great rewards, but in the wrong way. And just like a little fly in a perfume, just a little foolishness can ruin a man or a woman's life. It only takes one little foolish mistake. And Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 18 tells us, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So not only the little things, but one little person can do a lot of damage in a group. One person can cause a lot of trouble, and little things definitely have an impact. It only takes one little foolish mistake or slip of a tongue to destroy your career. And we ought to get up every day and ask the Lord, Lord, give me wisdom today not to do something foolishness that might undercut what you've been doing in my life. And Solomon warns us against the power of little things. In verse 1 it says, A little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. On to verse 2, A wise man's heart is at the right hand, but a fool's heart is at the left. And what he's saying here, if you go back to the culture of Solomon, a person's right hand was perceived as a place of power, and his left hand was perceived as weakness, and it was just a part of the culture. It has nothing to do with being left-handed. But he's saying that it's possible for you to do something little, and when you do something little, you'll fall into foolishness. Number two, we're going to look at foolishness and leadership. The psalmist goes on now into his next part of his discussion. He talks about how easy for foolishness is to get into leadership roles. And this is for good for anybody that, that leads, whether it be in church or whether they lead in business. But notice in verse 4, he talks about the, ego-dri- the ego-driven leader. In verse 4, he says, If the spirit of a ruler rises against you, do not leave your post, for consolation pacifies great offenses. So here's a picture of a, of a leader who thinks that he's arrived and he shouts and screams at everybody that's around him. And there are people around him that want to serve him, but all he does is abuse them now that he's their leader. And the foolishness in the heart of a proud leader causes him to think that he's above everybody else and that for some reason he has the right to oppress them with cruel language. Woodrow Wilson once wrote that every man that takes office in Washington they either grow or they swell. And he said, I give a man a job in this office. I watch him carefully to see if he's swelling or to see if he's growing. Proverbs 16, verse 32, <clears throat> tells us, He is slow to anger is better 
than the mighty, and he who rules in spirit than he who takes a city. If you'll flip on down to Proverbs 25, verse 28 tells us, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. So Solomon says that sometimes that you can get in the leadership foolishness, this ego-driven guy who thinks he's something, he likes to run roughshod over everybody. And now he goes on, he gives us some counsel of what we should do when we get up against somebody like this. And Solomon says in verse 4 that consolation pacifies great offenses. And basically saying, don't panic. You know, don't quit your job. Don't leave your post. But in other words, hang in there and deal with the person, but deal with them according to the Scripture. In Proverbs 16, verse 14, As messengers of death is the king's wrath, but a wise man will appease it. Proverbs 25, 15, By long forbearance are rulers persuaded, <clears throat> and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So follow the scripture. A soft answer turns away wrath, but deal with them according, uh, according to the word of God. Then he goes on some, uh, something to the other extreme, and that's the easy going leader. Verse 5 through 7 tells us, <clears throat> there, is an, <clears throat> there is evil I have seen under the sun, as an heir proceeding from the ruler, folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in a low place. I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. So here's another folly according to Solomon, an easygoing leader who puts unqualified people in office while he ignores those who should be leading under him. And perhaps he does what he does because he's, he's insecure. And he doesn't want anybody to threaten him, so he puts, <clears throat> puts in all these people who shouldn't even be in leadership. And they're riding their horses while the people who are really leaders are walking around like servants. And really qualified people are, are placed where they can't possibly be challenged or encouraged while the servants <clears throat> are given a position of honor. And you know that there's no way that this could ever work. So we got the ego-driven leader, we got the easy-going leader, and now we got the engineered leader. Look at verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your prince is feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your prince is feast at the proper time for strength and not for darkness. So here Solomon's talking about leaders who sometimes get in the office and are not experienced leaders, but they pretty much just get in the office from the help of their friends. And they don't have a clue what they're actually doing, and consequently, they don't do anything. And in the morning, they should be caring for the matters of state and the government, but they're already feasting and drinking. And all implications are that they party all day. And they are not deserving of leadership in office. And Solomon says, Woe to you when your king is childish. So now let's go on to the last one. We have the ego-driven leader, we have the easy-going leader, we have the engineered leader, and the last guy we have is the, the evil leader. And Solomon don't have anything good to say about him at all. He's just plain old lazy. If you look at verse 18 through 19, it says, Because of laziness, the building decays, and even though idleness of hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes merry, but m money is the answer for everything. <clears throat> 
So here's a guy sitting at home with a bottle of booze in his hand and he's watching TV and he's supposed to be doing work and taking care of things, but nothing is right and he's not taking care of anything. He's just a plain old lazy bone. And he's in a position where he's supposed to have leadership and Solomon says that he's got no excuses. He's just an evil man who cares nothing about his responsibilities. Though his laziness, his leadership, his kingdom is destroyed. And Solomon in the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about laziness. And Solomon's kind of giving us a little closing chapter on wisdom and foolishness. And he says sometimes you can be foolish in little things, but they can have a great impact. So now he's going to talk about another area real quickly through 8 through 10. That's foolishness in the labor pool. And Solomon says you can be foolish when you go to work. Uh, if you look at verse 8, he says, He who digs a pit will fall into it. And whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. And who, he who quarries stones may be hurt by them. And he who splits woods may be endangered by it. If the axe is dull and, <clears throat> and no one does uh, sharpen the edge, then he must use strength, but wisdom brings success. So most scholars here, they agree that Solomon is, is pointing out things that can happen to laborers in the workplace if they're foolish. And... You know, when you go to work and you don't wear your helmet, you can get in trouble. And you can make a lot of dumb mistakes. And he says, there are five illustrations that I want you to know about. And here's a laborer who is digging a pit, and because he's not careful and wise, he falls into the pit that he dug. And let's look at the rest of these. you got one that's digging through a wall, and because he's not careful and wise, he forgets that snakes like dark places. And when he sticks his hand in the wall, he gets bit by a serpent. And then you got a laborer that's quarrying stones and stone quarrying because it's not wise and careful. One of the stones falls on him and he gets hurt. And then you got a guy splitting wood and he's not careful when a piece of wood flies off the block. He's splitting and it hits him in the head. So Solomon says, at the end we go to work, but it's important for us to be wise while we're there. And especially if you're a Christian, you're going in the workplace that we work in today. We better pray to God every day that God give me wisdom as I go to work. And Solomon says it's foolish for a laborer to cut wood with a dull axe, and because of that, he has to work twice as hard. And if he was wise, he would take time off to sharpen his axe, and he would save himself a lot of time and a lot of energy. In other words, he should have been working smarter and not harder. And is it hard sometimes when we're working to do that, what we're supposed to do? To be, to be effective, you need sometimes just to sharpen your tools. You need to just to step back, reevaluate, sharpen our tools. And so I'm saying before I get in my last session of this book, I want to run by you some things that don't be foolish in the little things because they can have a big impact on our lives. Don't get involved in leadership and be foolish in leadership. Don't, get, don't be foolish in the labor pool and get hurt. Now I conclude with probably the most important part of the chapter. And, and if you deserve wherever there are discussions about foolishness, a, <clears throat> a fool that almost in some context it uses a tongue. And Psalm is going to talk now about foolishness in our language. A deacon was briefed beforehand of what his role would be in an upcoming missionary banquet. He was told to be sensitive to the fact that there would be guests in the banquet from foreign countries and that they would not be accustomed to the English language or our American culture. During the banquet, the deacon found himself settled next to an African man who was hung hungrily devouring his chicken. 
trying to think of some ways to communicate with a man that they can lean over and said, chomp, 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 good, huh? And the man gazing back at the deacon simply replied, mmm, good. After a few minutes went by, the African man savored down some coffee, and the deacon leaned over and commented, chug, 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 good, huh? The little man was uncertain, but he replied back to him, mmm, good. To the deacon's dismay, when the evening speaker was announced, it happened to be the African man who sat next to him. The gentleman got up, and he delivered a flawless message in Oxford accent English. Upon concluding, the speaker headed straight towards the deacon, whose face was red with embarrassment. And the speaker simply said, blab, 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 blab. Good, huh? <clears throat> Does that remind y'all of something you've ever did or said? Am I the only one that's ever stuck their foot in their mouth? Solomon says, if there's one place you can really see foolishness, it's in the way that we use our tongues. And really quick, there are five ways your tongue can betray you and discriminate the foolish person. The first one is an untamed tongue. Verse 11, a serpent may bite when he is not charmed, and the babbler is no different. And interestingly, this is coming to Solomon's day when they had snake charmers. But Solomon says, here the serpent can bite you while you're getting ready to charm it. And he's saying the babbler is no different. When you're getting ready to control your tongue, it can get out of hand and it can do you in. And the word charmer literally means master of the tongue. And Solomon's saying, what's that tongue of yours? Don't speak before you think. And Solomon already told us in chapter 3, there's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. And so an untamed tongue is a foolish tongue, but notice second, an unkind tongue. Look at verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. And so the wise man's words will be gracious, but a foolish man's words will destroy others and they will eventually destroy him. In Proverbs 10, 32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Proverbs 13, 3, he who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Proverbs 21, 23, whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from trouble. So we really have no idea how much trouble our tongues get us into. You know, James says that you can bridle a horse or you can rudder a ship easier than you can tame your tongue. For third one, we have the unwise tongue. Look at verse 13. The wise words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. I'm sure you've probably known someone like this before. And this is probably someone you know who who talks just for the sake of talking. They don't really have anything to say, but they just gotta say something. They just go on and on and it'll drive us crazy. And some people just open their mouths just for the sake of talking. They don't make any sense, but they start out with foolishness and as they keep talking, it just turns into craziness. Fourth, then there's the undisciplined tongue. Verse 14, a fool also multiplies his words. A fool is full of words without realizing he's saying nothing. <clears throat> Roxanne Lullo, she labels an undisciplined talker as, as harm, H-A-R-M, which stands for hit and run mouth. 
Now she describes this in her book for a person who, who has hit and run mouth and for whatever reason feels compelled to tell you just what they think of you and your actions regardless of what they know about you. They just have a desire just to be heard without hearing, to be known without knowing. He doesn't care about getting the facts straight. He just wants attention. It's just simply hit and run mouth. Let's look at verses 14 and 15 as we have an unreasonable tongue. Verse 14 tells us, No man knows what is to be, who can tell him what will be after him. The labor of fool worries them, for they do not even know how to, get, how to go to the city. Now watch this, look at Proverbs 27.1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. So here he's talking about somebody who is always talking about things that they're going to do in the future and how the future is going to be played out. And if you look back over chapter 3, he touches on this in verse 22 of chapter 3. He says, So I perceive that nothing is better than a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. Now watch this. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? So what he's saying is he can't know the future. Notice in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, For who knows what is good for a man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Chapter 8, verse 7 says, For he who does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when this will occur? <clears throat> and if you like Old Testament humor, this is one, that, one of Solomon's jokes. He says that, that the foolish talker is always yakking about the future, but they can't even figure out how to get back from the city. And the psalmist says this guy's just babbling and babbling on about the future, and he don't even know how to get back home. So now there's the last one as we go down to verse 20, and that's the unfaithful tongue. Verse 20 tells us, Do not curse the king, even in your thought. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird of flight may tell your matter. And Psalm is saying here, be careful what you say <clears throat> with your tongue. Make sure to be disciplined. Don't say something in private that we wouldn't say in public. And then he says, if you do, you might think you're in the back in the bedroom and nobody's there. And, and nobody will know what happens. But guess what happens? A bird hears you and it cares and cares it. And that's when somebody says, well, how did you find out? And they say, well, a little birdie told me. That's where this comes from. But we know that birds really don't talk, but he was reminding us with this little illustration that a wise person, <clears throat> they're faithful even when he's unheard. And he tells us that if we're going to have the ability to negotiate life under the sun, and now he's brought God back into the picture, we have to be careful about the little things because these little concessions can have great harm. And our prayer should always be, Lord, put a guard on my mouth so I don't say something that would be hurtful to you or be hurtful to others. So we're at 530 Station now. horror of this concentration camp where torture and death awaited every man, woman, and child who arrived there. On October 14, 1943, Jewish slaves, laborers in Sobibor, surprised their captors by using their shovels and their pickaxes as weapons in a well-planned attack. Some of the Jewish prisoners cut the electricity to the fence. They used pistols that they had captured and rifles to shoot their way past the German guards. 
Hundreds of others stormed through the barbed wire and minefields to the potential safety of the nearby forest. Of the 700 prisoners who took part in the escape, 300 made it to the forest. Of those who made it to the forest, less than 100 are known to have survived. Most were hunted down by the Germans and executed on the spot. One of the former prisoners who lived to talk about Sobibor was a man named Thomas Blatt, or Toivy, as he was known in his native Poland. Toivy was 15 years old when his family was herded into Sobibor. His parents were executed in the gas chamber, but Toivy, who was young and healthy, was a prime candidate for slave labor, so they kept him alive. In the confusion of the escape back in 1943, Toivy had attempted to crawl through a hole in the barbed wire fence, but was trampled on by the prisoners who stormed the fence and ran through the minefield. As a result, Toivy was one of the last to escape the camp. He and two companions started their long journey through the dense woods. Every morning at daybreak, they buried themselves in the woods to sleep, and every night they made their way through the trees and the thick brush. The boys had much to drive them on. They were young, they were determined, they were filled with revenge and fear, had a deep desire to survive, and most significantly, they had regained something they'd once lost. They now had hope. But what they really needed was a guide, someone who could read the stars, someone who knew north from south and east from west. All three of them were city boys, and they had no outdoor skills at all. After four nights of wandering through the cold forest, the three boys saw buildings silhouetted against the dark sky in the distance. With smiles on their faces, they eagerly approached it with the hope that it might provide sanctuary from those who were chasing them. As they got closer, they noticed that the building they had seen was a tower. Specifically, it was the east tower of the Sobibor concentration camp. They had made one giant circle through the woods, and they had ended up exactly where they started. Terrified, the three boys plunged back into the forest, but only Toivy lived to tell about their awful experience. In these last weeks, as we've examined the book of Ecclesiastes, we have followed Solomon on such a journey, starting out to find the meaning of life, only to find himself going in circles, going down cul-de-sacs, going in turnabouts, and discovering that all of the things that he pursued without God left him right back where he started, only tired for the energy he had invested in the journey. The last two chapters of this book are studied together because the argument flows from the 11th chapter all the way through to the end, and the chapter break is more for convenience than it is for understanding, so we're going to cover these chapters together. Obviously, we can't take a long time on each of the verses. But Solomon has taken us down this road of investigation in this book. And in case you weren't here when we started, I want to remind you once again that Solomon has written three books. He wrote one book in his youth, the book of romance, which is the Song of Solomon. He, he wrote another book at midlife, which is the book of Proverbs. That's the book of rules. And then he wrote this book at the end of his life, and that's the book of regrets. And now as Solomon has taken us through this process, he has helped us understand that life under the sun without God is a, is a meaningless experience. It's like being in a cul-de-sac. It's like going a roundabout. It's 
nowhere. It gets you nowhere. It just leaves you empty. And he's got many metaphors to describe it. It's like chasing the wind. It's like uh, vanity. It's like a puff of smoke. Life without God, Solomon has demonstrated in many ways, is meaningless. In the passage that we have before us today, he is going to resolve all the questions that he has raised in these first 10 chapters. And he's going to come at last in the 12th chapter to what he calls the final conclusion. Here's my final conclusion. But Solomon wants us to understand that on the way to the final conclusion, we are still here on this earth. And uh, we're going to ultimately be with God forever, but on this earth, we have to live by the priorities of life. And so it's very interesting that starting at the beginning of the 11th chapter and going all the way through to the end of the 12th chapter, Solomon kind of gives us some overarching principles upon which we should base our lives. And as you look at these principles with me, you will see that they are sort of the conclusions of many of the threads of argument that Solomon has uh, woven together in this book. And uh, they come sort of like admonitions. And the first one is in verses one through six of chapter 11, it goes like this, life is uncertain, so embrace it. <laughs> Life is uncertain, so embrace it. Solomon has gone to great pain to demonstrate throughout the pages of Ecclesiastes the uncertainty of life. We cannot know. In fact, four times in these verses he says, you don't know. You cannot know. Life is uncertain. The temptation that many of us would have if we believe we're ultimately going to go to heaven and that this life is uncertain, we ought to just chill out, sit back and not do anything risky, just kind of be cool and go through life and wait for death and then you go to be with God. And I know some people that live like that. But if you study Solomon's wisdom literature, you'd never be able to take that course because Solomon really has an interesting take on life when it comes to this particular process. He begins by telling us life is uncertain, embrace it, so the first thing you need to do is diversify your investments. Life is uncertain. Notice in verses one and two. Cast your bread on the water, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven also to eight, for you do not know what evil would be on the earth. Now this first verse of the 11th chapter captures another one of those famous idioms in the book of Ecclesiastes. Cast your bread on the water. You've heard that before. Maybe you wondered where it came from. Well, it's right here from the book of Ecclesiastes. And what it means in the context of this book is, in that particular time, the merchants of Solomon's day would loan up, load up their grain ships and send them off in commerce, hoping that in the process, they would be able to trade and bring back more in trade than what they sent out. That was casting their bread on the water. They would load up their grain in these big ships and if they didn't send them out, they would sit in the harbor and rot. Solomon says, cast your bread upon the waters, and he uses the plural. In other words, don't put all your grain in one ship. Put your grain in several ships and send it out in a diversified way so that if one of them doesn't work, you've got some others that do. Now, in our day and age, we call that diversifying your portfolio, not putting all of your investment in one place. Solomon is telling us that we should, because life is uncertain and we don't know what's going to happen, we should spread our investments out. In fact, he goes so far as to say uh, seven or eight different places. He says in verse two, give a serving to seven or also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. 
Then he goes into another argument of the same nature, only this one has to do with how we go about our work. We're to diversify our investment, and he, he says we're to be diligent in our involvement. Notice verses three and following. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. So in the morning sow your seed, and in the evening don't withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Now, here's what Solomon is teaching us. If you believe life is uncertain, one of your approaches to life would be, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit back and cool my jets and, and wait and see what happens because everything's so uncertain. I don't know what to do. Solomon says, no, between here and eternity, life is uncertain. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be aggressive in your approach to life. You should be bold. Be strong for the Lord your God is with you. And he says, go out and work hard every day. Plant your seed. Harvest your crops. And because life is uncertain, don't work less, work more. Because life is uncertain, don't go out and just say, well, you know, if the Lord's coming back, I only need this little bit of a garden. No, you go out and you sow your seed and you work hard and you involve yourselves because he says, you don't know what's going to happen. He says, you don't know if it's going to rain or not. It might or it might not. How many of you have been driving down the highway here in Southern California? And I've noticed this here more than where I lived in the Midwest. You could be driving down the highway and you drive through little patches of rain. You go through rain and all of a sudden it's not raining and then it's raining again. How are you supposed to know where the rain is going to come? Solomon says a tree falls and when a tree falls, it falls north or south and it stays where it falls. But you can't figure out where the rain's going to fall. And just as you don't know where the rain is going to go, and just as you don't know where the wind is going to blow, Solomon says you can't figure out how the bones grow in a pregnant woman's womb. He says just like all those things you can't figure out, you can't figure out God. So since you don't understand God, and you don't know what's going to happen in life, here's the best thing you can do. Invest yourself and involve yourself with life, with energy and with boldness. Now that's something you won't hear very often from many places. Because some people give me the impression that since they know they're going to heaven, they should put a white sheet on and go sit on a fence waiting for the Lord to return. Have you ever noticed that? It's kind of, well, I'm going to heaven. That's okay. I don't have to do anything. No, if you're going to heaven, you ought to live life passionately because you only get one shot at this life. That's what Solomon is teaching us. Now, the second thing he tells us in this passage of scripture is that we are not going to stay young all of our lives. Life is short. Enjoy it. Verses 7 in chapter 11 to verse 8 in chapter 12. First of all, Solomon says you should experience every day totally. Just experience it totally. Notice verses 7 through 9. Since life is short, and you don't know how long you have to live, you should live every day with gusto. Truly the light is sweet, he says, and it's pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all... Yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. I love the message of the seventh verse because it resonates with my spirit so much. Solomon says we should never take for granted the dawning of a new day. Don't get the idea that just because you're here today, you're going to be here tomorrow, or the world is going to be the same. He says get up every day, look out and say, good morning, Lord. Some people get out and say, good Lord, morning. You know, I mean, that's how they say, I mean, that's how they face life. 
but you should get up and say, good morning, Lord. And thank God for this day that he has trusted you with. That's what he's saying. He's saying, truly the light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. I love the sunshine. I love to see the sun peeking through the window when I get up in the morning, getting ready to face the day, knowing that almost every day in California is a sunny day. Be thankful. Solomon is saying, experience each day totally. Do you begin your day with a prayer of gratitude for God for the gift of life? Maybe maybe you should realize that until you have life threatened a little bit, you won't do that probably. But when you think about the fact that you might not have days to live, you get up in a different way and every day, if you looked at my journal, almost every journal entry says the very same thing. Thank you, Lord, for this day and for a good night's rest and for the privilege of being alive one more day on this earth to serve you. Experience each day totally. Then Solomon says, enjoy your youth thoroughly, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And I'm glad we got some young people here today. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now, I've been telling you throughout this whole series that Solomon's got a one, one little string he likes to play in this book, and that is enjoy life. Here he's telling us that young people especially should enjoy life. He admonishes those who are young to enjoy their youth and to live with great adventure and excitement because these are some of the best days you're ever going to have. You know, if you watch young people, you, you just get so, you get so amused, especially as you get older. You watch them and, you know, they, they're 16, but they want to be 18. Then they're 18, they want to be 21. And then they're 21, they want to be 25. Somewhere along the way, that process starts to reverse itself. I'm not sure where it is, but somewhere it starts to reverse itself. Well, what Solomon is saying here is that when you're young, it's the best time of life. And I think that we ought to be saying that to our kids more than we do. They keep thinking, oh, it's going to be so much better later. Well, it's good along the way. But youth has so many advantages. Not as much responsibility, lots of energy, many good friends. After my two boys went away to play football, we were talking one day and we kind of all agreed together that as much fun as it was to play football in college, the high school days are the best of all. Because you've got this camaraderie and it's not, it's not a business, it's a game and it's fun and everybody gets together. Can I get a witness? Isn't that true? Your high school, your young days are great. So Solomon says, don't try to always be getting past where you are. Enjoy where you are, young people. This is a great time in your life. And you will look back on this later and say, those were some good days. So Solomon says, remove sorrow from your heart. Put away evil from your flesh. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. He's not saying go out and sow wild oats. He's not saying that. In fact, he's reminding us that whatever you do while you're having a good time as a young person, you're going to have to give an answer to God. So here's the way you look at it. I'm going to enjoy everything in my life that I can enjoy that won't get me in trouble with God. Amen? That's a good way to start out, isn't it? I'm going to enjoy everything I can in my life that God will smile on. And you think, well, that's going to be boring. Oh, no, it's not. You, you let God be your, your entertainment director along the way. And you'll be surprised how much fun it is to live for the Lord and not have guilt hanging over you for stuff you know you shouldn't have done, but just to enjoy the exuberance of being young. 
Let me just say a word here to parents that I think is very important. Please allow your kids to be kids. Let them enjoy their childhood and their youth. Don't make them grow up too fast. Don't always try to, don't always try to push them beyond where they should be. I know kids who have lost their entire adolescence because of parents wanting them to be older than they are. And then they end up feeling like they've lost something and they go back and try to recover it and it destroys their marriage. <laughs> so let your kids be kids. And remember, kids are crazy. They do weird stuff. And Mark Twain said, if you've got a kid, you put him in a barrel and you put a top on it and you cut a little hole in the barrel. And when he turns 16, you plug up the hole. That's what he said. I guess it, <laughs> that, that's how you get through teenage years. And he only said that because he was trying to make the point that growing up is like a whitewater. But those are great days. And parents, let your kids be kids. Amen? And understand that they're, you know, well, why, didn't, why don't you act more mature? Because I'm not more mature. But I will be someday. So just give me some hope. So experience each day totally. Enjoy your youth thoroughly. And then the third thing is express your faith thoughtfully. Solomon says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come and all the years draw near when you say I have no pleasure in them, when the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are not darkened and the clouds do not return after the rain. Solomon says two times in this last chapter, Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And that just runs against the grain of the way most young people think. A lot of young people think that, you know, I don't need to be serious about God now. There's time for that later. I'll get serious about God when I'm older, you know, when I've lived, lived more. No, Solomon says, here's the key. Here's the key to life. Get your stuff with God together when you're young so you can carry that into your adult years and you will have this foundation that will give you such stability. People will marvel at who you are and how you function. Remember, he says, your creator. He's not just talking about having a memory of him. The word remember means to get involved in mentally and, and committed to him. Be committed to your creator when you're young. When the days are not dark. When the clouds don't come back after it rains. In other words, in the good days of your youth, when you're enjoying your young days, don't forget to embrace God and spend time with God. Learn what it means to be disciplined and spend some time in devotions every day and get somebody to partner with you and be accountable to one another. Get in a small platoon, whatever that you do that can help you wrap your spiritual arms around Almighty God when you're young so that you carry that foundation into your adolescent years and on up into your young adult years. Uh, we all who grew up in Christian homes look back and see how many times we came close to really messing up good. But what would have happened had we not had the foundation that we had to start with? I'll tell you the truth. I don't want to go there because it's scary. Get your stuff together with God, kids, when you're young. And don't wait until you get old. Now, he's talked about experiencing every day totally and enjoying your youth thoroughly and expressing your faith thoughtfully. Now he's going to talk to the rest of us who aren't young. And he's going to say, embrace your aging, thankfully. And verses 3 through 7 could be depressing if they weren't so picturesque and accurate. Take a deep breath, everybody, over 40. <laughs> Solomon is going to give us a little picture, sort of uh, poetically, 
about getting older. Now, I want to read this to you. And what I'd like you to do is look down at your Bible. Instead of my reading the text like it is, one phrase after another, I'm going to read the phrases and tell you what they mean metaphorically. So you follow. I, I might miss one or two, but you'll be able to stay with me if you stay in the text. He starts out by saying in verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble. Well, the keepers of your house are your arms and your hands. And he says, as you start getting older, they start to tremble. The strong men, those are your legs, your knees and your shoulders weaken and you walk bent over. And then it says, when the grinders ceased because they are few. That means you're losing your teeth. <laughs> and then it says, when the windows grow dim, that means your eyesight isn't very good. And the doors, it talks about the doors shut in the street. That means you can't hear what's going on outside anymore. And then it says, talks about grinding again. You can't chew your food. And it says, you rise up with the birds. As soon as the birds starts chirping, four o'clock in the morning, you get up. Do you ever notice how early old people get up? <laughs> my parents used to stay at our house. No matter what time I got up in the morning, my dad was sitting at the kitchen at the kitchen table. And I, I, I asked him several times, Dad, did you go to bed last night? <laughs> oh yeah, I, I just like to get up early. Old people get up early and they go to bed early. And some of you are, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> then it talks about music. It says your voice starts to quiver and weaken and you're afraid, you're terrified of heights and you're afraid of falling when you walk down the street. And then I love this one. It says, uh, when the almond tree blossoms, your hair turns white. That's really what it's talking about. You get white hair. And it says uh, the grasshopper is a burden. It's a picture of a grasshopper at the end of the summer. It can, it's all worn out. It can hardly pull itself up. This, this, this little creature that was so invigorated in the beginning of the summer is pulling itself, just barely making it across the ground. And then it says, and this one here I got to be careful with, and desire fails. <laughs> you can take that wherever you want to. And then it says, man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. What's that? That's a funeral procession. Now, then you get to verse six and he says, remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Those are three metaphors for what it's like to die. Now, remember what our point is here. Our point is, life is short, enjoy it. What Solomon is trying to do is he's taking us on a little journey from being real young to the very last days of our life. And he wants us to understand that we're supposed to enjoy life. I heard a story this week about a fella who loved to play golf, but he was over 80 and his vision wasn't very good anymore. His windows weren't working. And he always had these guys that would go with him to the country club to help him. When he went out to play, they would watch where he hit the ball and they would tell him where it went and then he'd go hit it again. Well, one day he went to play golf and his buddies didn't show up. And it was such a beautiful day. He wanted to play golf so bad. So he just hung around the clubhouse groaning and moaning. And the more upset he got, the more people began to notice him. And finally, this other guy in the clubhouse walked over to him and said, what's wrong? You look so depressed. And he explained his predicament. He said, I was looking forward to playing golf today, but I don't see well anymore. So I got to have somebody to watch the ball after I hit it. Well, the second man 
was older than he was. But miraculously, he said, that's no problem. I'll ride around with you. I have 20-20 vision. I can see like a hawk. You just hit the ball and I'll watch the ball fly down the fairway. So they went out on the first tee and the old man hit the ball right down the center. He turned to the spotter and he said, did you see it? He said, I saw it all the way. I watched it all the way till it stopped rolling. I saw it every inch of the way. He said, where, where did it go? The older man paused for a moment. He said, I forgot. That's what it's like. I read this week about a little boy who asked his grandmother how old she was. She, she said, I'm 39 and holding. And the little tyke thought for a moment and he said, how old would you be if you let go? <laughs> well, you know what? I think Solomon would enjoy church today because what he's trying to tell us is we need to enjoy life. You know, I love to hear you laugh because it reminds me that there's a lot of things we have to cry about around here. Once in a while, we can just sit back and church is not a bad place to laugh. Solomon says, enjoy life. It's pretty short. You better not let it pass without understanding how important it is to enjoy it. And then he says, thirdly, life is mysterious, so examine it. Life is mysterious, examine it. Verses 9 through 12, he teaches us that life is like an exam, only... The exam comes first and the learning comes second. How many of you noticed that? In, in school, you study and then you take an exam. Well, in real life, you get the exam and then you study. You get the test first and then you figure out what is God doing here? He talks about the fact that wisdom comes through instruction. He says, moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge and he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. And wisdom comes through insight. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find acceptable words and what was written was upright, words of truth. Solomon's teaching, by the way, was like our Lord's. His words were acceptable and they were words of truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth and Solomon taught the same way. And then wisdom comes through inspiration, verses 11 and 12. He says, the words of the wise are like goads and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd and further my son shall be admonished by these. And of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. A lot of young people and college students love that last verse. You know, study is wearisome to the flesh. In the making of the books, there is no end. Solomon points us at the end of this treatise to the fact that there is some wisdom that comes, and he calls the one who gives it the one shepherd. Look down at your Bibles and notice the shepherd is capitalized. He's talking about God. He's saying, get your wisdom from God. Just remember, he's the one who nails wisdom and clinches it in your heart. Get your wisdom from God. And then when he talks about this fact that don't get into many books, a lot of people think, well, what, what that means, I've actually heard preachers say, what Solomon meant was the only book you should ever study is the Bible. So they never read a commentary, they never read a history book, they just read the Bible. Well, you know, you can say what you want to about that. I read the Bible every day, but I read everything I can find. It helps me understand what the Bible says, too. What Solomon is saying, I believe, here is that Christianity and knowing God is not primarily about searching. It's about finding. It's not about questions. It's about answers. How many of you know people, and I meet them all the time, who, when you start talking to them about their faith, they'll say, 
Oh yeah, I'm searching. Well, why are you searching? Let me show you where the answer is. They believe that reality is in the search, not in the answers. I remember reading in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, a little story about a confrontation that happened. One of C.S. Lewis's characters, and he captures the tone of what I think this passage is saying. Listen carefully. In the scene in his book, they're on the borders of heaven. A lifelong searcher is outside of heaven and he's being told to come in. In the story, the person who meets him at the border is, is called the White Spirit. So that's just in C.S. Lewis's story. It's not a biblical story, it's a, it's a paradigm. And the White Spirit invites him in and he says to him, only thing I can give you when you come in is forgiveness for having perverted all of your, all of your values and all of your brain and all of your intelligence. There is no atmosphere in this place called heaven for inquiry. I am going to bring you to the land not of questions but of answers and you will see the face of God. He says that to the inquirer. Well, the inquirer answers and he says, oh, but we must interpret those beautiful words in our own way. Sound familiar? For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue it must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? Listen, said the white spirit, once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and you were glad when you had found them. Become that child again, even now. Ah, oh, said the inquirer, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And the encounter ends when the inquirer mentions that he has an appointment and he makes his apologies, leaving the borders of heaven and hurrying off to his discussion group in hell. That's how the story ends. Do you get the message? He was right next to the answer, but because he thought reality was in the quest, he wouldn't accept the fact that there are answers. Solomon says, Take the wisdom from the one shepherd and don't get so caught up in the many inquiries that you forget about the fact that questions are for answers and the answer is already out there. The answer is Almighty God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the answer. That's where you're going. So if you want to spend your whole life on a journey going nowhere, well, let Solomon tell you what that's like. He spent a lot of years there. Finally, Solomon comes to the very end of his book, and this is where we've been headed since day one, and we're almost finished. Life is obedience. Express it. Notice what he says in verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here it is. Fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing. Solomon says that the answer to the search is to fear God and to obey what he has to say. You wanna know where meaning is found in life? We just read it. Meaning in life is found in a relationship with Almighty God. When it says to fear him, it means to have awe and reverence for him, to stand in awe of who he is and what he has done. And when it says to keep his commandments, it means exactly that. To find out what God wants and do it. You know how to be happy in life? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. 
And uh, the verse is even more powerful. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his goodwill, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. You want to be happy? You want to find meaning? God created you. Listen to me now. God created you with a place in your heart that only he can fill. The third chapter says God has put eternity in your heart. Solomon said he spent the majority of his older years going through this process of trying to find something to stuff in that place that would give him meaning and he couldn't find anything because nothing will give you meaning until Almighty God is at home in your life and God comes into your life through his son Jesus Christ when you receive him into your heart and into your life he becomes your savior and as you give him lordship and control over your life you find that missing joy and peace that you've been searching for here's the conclusion of the matter said Solomon fear God keep his commandments God's gonna bring every work into judgment including every secret thing whether good or evil walk with God faithfully I've been testing that out for a bunch of years I've believed that for a long time I've been testing it out well over 40 years I want to tell you that my joy and my peace and my excitement about life is directly proportionate to my obedience to God and my reverence for who he is if I ever get very far away from that little circle, I start to fall back into the disappointment and discouragement that can take you down the wrong road. But when I fear God and I keep his commandments, it's high five time. There is joy in this life. Solomon wants us to know it. It's found in a person. That person is the Lord Jesus Christ. About whom we read in the New Testament, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it you know the rest of it more abundantly. God wants you to have abundant life.